Okay, perhaps we'll begin. I sit before you, the prophet of gloom. <laughs> Not again, you say. <laughs> this evening, you'll be pleased to know, I get on to some of the um, more uplifting elements of the past. But first of all, I want to kind of recap where we are. I spent a long time, haven't I, so far, uh, engaging in, in sort of diagnostics and what are the problems. And if I had a title for this, this particular talk this evening, I think it would, it would be Forgetfulness and the Art of Nirvana. Okay, and I'll explain this as we go through. Because one of the claims I really want to make that so much of our lives are lived in forgetfulness. One particular author, one English author, Lawrence Durrell, some of you might have heard of him, said that the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. Yeah. And that's pretty true in terms of a lot of our own lives, isn't it? We don't learn that much. In fact, I want to read you a quotation in a second, which I think actually is very indicative of this, this actual not learning. However, there is an alternative. Remember, we were talking at the end of the, you know, I was talking at the previous, end of the previous talk, that there is an alternative, and this is what the Buddha is offering us. Uh, it's an alternative we've got to opt for. It doesn't just come upon us. You know, it doesn't just happen. We have to go opt for it. And in some senses, we have to go through a sense of disillusionment, often with our ways of life, with our ways of being, you know, of the ways that we normally conduct ourselves and continue through the world. To come to a point which I think is captured and you've heard us say this a couple of times, you know, just in the talks in the morning and in the evening, captured in this word sati. This word sati, which is usually translated as mindfulness, you know, we've gone on endlessly about you know, mindfulness, but actually has this connotation of remembering, actually remembering, remembering where we are, remembering what we're doing, opening to aspects of our being here in this world to which we are constantly forgetful. Constantly forgetful. Almost looking for meaning, the meaning in our lives in something which is unattainable. Almost illusionary. Illusory in the sense of it doesn't really exist. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we go through. But first of all, before I start, I just want to read you a quotation. It's a quotation from Rilke. Now, some of you might know his poetry, but this is actually his one piece of prose. It's a prose novel called The Notebooks of Malta Lorid Brigger. And he says this, I'm lying in my bed five flights up, and my day, which nothing interrupts, is like a clock face without hands. As something that has been lost for a long time reappears one morning in its old place, safe and sound, almost newer than when it vanished, just as if someone had been taking care of it, so here and there on my blanket, lost feelings out of my childhood lie and are like new. All the lost fears are here again. The fear that a small woolen thread sticking out of the hem of my blanket may be hard, hard and sharp as a steel needle. The fear that this little button on my nightshirt may be bigger than my head. Bigger and heavier. The fear that the breadcrumb which has just dropped off my bed, may turn into glass and shatter when it hits the floor, and the sickening worry that when it does, everything will be broken forever. The fear that the ragged edge of a letter which was torn open may be something forbidden, which no one ought to see, something indescribably precious, for which no place in the room is safe enough. 
the fear that if I fell asleep I might swallow the piece of coal lying in front of the stove, the fear that some numbers may begin to grow in my brain until there's no more room in it inside of me, the fear that I might be lying on granite, on grey granite, the fear that I might start screaming and that people will come running to my door and finally force it open, the fear that I might betray myself and tell everything I dread, and the fear that I might not be able to say anything, because everything is unsayable. And the other fears, the fears, the fears, the fears. I prayed to rediscover my childhood, and it's come back to me, and I feel that it is just as difficult as it used to be, and that growing older has served absolutely no purpose at all. Does that ever feel like you? <laughs> because you could actually substitute the word fears for any strong emotional childhood experience that keeps on returning to us. Now, this is not to diminish the importance of this, but the fact that we often are embedded in that past and projecting into that future. Embedding in the past and actually, as Rilke is claiming right at the end there, learning nothing from this. Learning absolutely nothing at all from this experience. The Buddha is giving us a different way of being. A way of being that opens up this moment and to what is present in this moment as being meaningful. Something that is valuable, that gets lost when we get lost in our non-learning forgetfulness of dwelling in the past. When we're projecting into the future looking for happiness, which we're kind of trying to manufacture. Yeah? Trying to manufacture it. The Zen tradition, which I talked a little bit about the other night, uses humour, remember? You know, saying it uses humour to try and make points about this. And it uses particularly sometimes storytelling to make this point. And there's a lovely Zen story of a Zen master who's dying. He's on his deathbed. And his disciples are gathered round him. And... The chief disciple says to one of the other disciples, what shall we do for the master who's, who's passing away? And one of the disciples says, he used to love a particular cake. He used to love a particular cake. And so they said, we'll go out and get it for him. And so one of the monks goes and buys this cake and brings it back. The master is lying on his deathbed and they gather around it, gather around him and they give him this cake. And the master takes a bite of it, utters something to the chief disciple, which nobody else can hear, and passes away. All the other disciples gather around this chief disciple. What did the master say? What were his final what was his final teaching? What was his final dispensation? And the chief disciple says, the master says, it's lovely cake. <laughs> you can see the point of that is about being in the moment. <laughs> Even on one's deathbed. <laughs> and there are many, many stories. I only use that as one example. There are many, many stories in the Zen tradition you know, about dying and dangerous situations where people remain in the moment, not in this act of forgetting. Remember we've talked a lot in the previous evenings about the confusion that we often experience, and that confusion, in our confusion, we're engaged in a constant state of forgetfulness. And actually our present society, our present ways of life encourage forgetfulness, don't they? Yeah. Milan Kundera, the, um, the Czech author, um, as many of you might know some of his work, um, 
the unbearable lightness of being, for example, which they turned into a film. And in one of his works, which was actually about the novel writing, he wrote this. Speed, the demon of speed, is often associated with forgetting, with avoidance, and slowly, slowness with memory and confronting. We move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others and the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. The rush of contemporary life overwhelms us and overwhelms our ability to observe, to hear, to step back and to wonder. Society simply wants to blow out the tiny, trembling flame of memory. There is so much in that quotation that's so resonant, even to two and a half thousand years ago when the Buddha was living. Yeah. Forgetting, avoidance, let's pick up some of these words, forgetting, avoidance, listening to ourselves, listening to others, moving slowly. Does this, any of this have a resonance with what we've been doing this week? Yeah? Yeah? The rush of contemporary life overwhelming us impeding that ability to observe, to listen, to really listen. And of course, something that really gets forgotten, forgotten, I should say, something that really gets forgotten, the ability to wonder. Yeah? The ability to actually appreciate the wondrousness of being at all here in this world. Yeah? That can really get so overwhelmed, can't it? By our ordinary day-to-day -day lives with all of the demands which are made on our lives. And one thing that dies often, uh, but gets forced in another way, one thing that often dies, and you might not think it from the previous two talks, uh, but the Buddha really speaks about this as being so important. One of the things that often dies in our contemporary ways of living is joy. Real joy. Not the kind of ecstatic craziness, but the gentle joyfulness that can run through life and lift the heart and lighten our hearts and minds as we approach life's difficulties. Yeah as we approach life's difficulties, rather being, than being lost and overwhelmed in a constant frantic seeking for pleasure. Now the Buddha's message to, to us is that a lot of this can be discovered in this moment. Yeah. We don't need to be looking in other places. The poet Rambeau says, life is always elsewhere. Yeah. Life is always elsewhere. I've used often the analogy, and I can't remember whether I've done it here or not, of you know, when I've been doing country walking. Have you noticed how sheep are always getting stuck with their heads through grass? They've got a big field of grass behind them and they'll get their heads wedged in a piece of wire, trying to eat the grass on the other side of the... <laughs> Again, I think that's terribly resonant of the ways that we often behave, isn't it? Yeah. We kind of overlook that which is present right here, right now, and can be our source, because we think meaning is somewhere elsewhere that it's some distant point, some metaphysical understanding, some truth-giving act, which is separate somehow from this moment. There are traditions which talk about those things, but that's not the early Buddhist tradition. That's not the Buddha's teaching. Yeah. The joy, the contentment, the peace of which he speaks, and the freedom of which he speaks of as to be discoverable in this moment. 
not elsewhere. It's not life is elsewhere. Life is here at this moment with all of the repleteness of meaning that it holds within this moment and yet we overlook it. Yet we overlook it. We overlook the source of joy that can be often within this moment, even within the difficulty of life, even within the difficulties which we encounter. And we live in that forgetfulness, that forgetfulness of being. Most of you will have come across a word because yeah, it's entered into the English language, it's entered into the dictionary, and it even became a rock band. It was called Nirvana. <laughs> I, was in, I, was really in, I was really fascinated that uh, we turned a rock band, uh, we turned Nirvana into a rock band, and Sangsara, which is the opposite of Nirvana in Buddhist languages, into a perfume. <laughs> you know, says it all, doesn't it, really? <laughs> So we have, um, we have this word which seemingly is familiar to us and we get very much a wrong impression about what it's about, nirvana. Nirvana seems to be like, I don't know if it's ever come across you, struck you in this way, but nirvana appears to be Buddhist heaven. Yeah? You know, you'll find in popular books on Buddhism, sometimes badly written books, I might add, um, going to nirvana, reaching nirvana, yeah. as if it's somewhere else, yeah. as if nirvana is somewhere else, as if it is that Buddhist metaphysical heaven. And there's no doubt about it that sometimes it's spoken about in later traditions in that way as they get further and further away from the time of the Buddha. I want to kind of drop in something here and then explore it as we go along. That nirvana, rather than being a place, is a moment-to-moment skill. And it's a skill that's brought about by remembrance. Yeah, there you go. That's the phrase. I can go now. <laughs> yeah. It's a skill that's brought about by remembrance, by sati, by this business of mindfulness, if you want to, along with a lot of other things as well. It's not support, that's not merely the only approach to this. So nirvana becomes not an unattainable goal, but something we can experience right here, right now, as we sit on our cushions. The phrase, the, the word nirvana is a very interesting word. Um, I don't want to do Pali etymology with you, but you know, this is an interesting word because it literally means gone out. <laughs> yeah, that's what it means, gone out. It's an intransitive verb, if you want to know the technical side of it. It's an intransitive verb. It doesn't pass from a subject to an object. Yeah. It describes a state of being. So you might ask, what's gone out? <laughs> Remember we were using metaphors the other night? The metaphors of the fires of greed, aversion and confusion. Sometimes translated as delusion. Yeah. Three fires. Remember I spoke about these three fires? We keep them burning, we feed them, we keep stoking them up. Craving and grasping and holding on are really good ways, as is denial. Pushing away. If we really want to keep these things going, engage in those two behaviours. Push something away or desperately hold on to it. Even the word that's used in the original language for grasping, the word upadana, you don't have to remember this word, but actually was a word that was used in ancient India to literally physically fuel a fire. Upadana meant to fuel a material process, yeah, to keep on fueling it. 
So if you want to keep your fires going, remember I said at one point in the previous talk, you know, you've got to choose, haven't you? Whether you want to keep those fires going or not. How, you know, I put it very simply, actually quite bluntly, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to keep those fires going or do you want to live in another way? The mere fact that you're here listening to this, not necessarily agreeing with it because that's not what it's about, but prepared to investigate it, suggests to me that actually probably you don't want to live in those ways. But we tend to forget how deeply we are attached to our habit patterns. You know, <laughs> you know that toy company, Toys R Us? Well, habits are us. Yeah. That's what we tend to think of. Habits are us. Yeah. And has anybody, have you ever had anybody challenge one of your habits? Yeah. And I'm not talking about anything really serious. I'm just talking about minor stuff. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, do you know you have that rather irritating little habit? And you go, what, me? <laughs> yeah. And again, that phrase comes out, that's the way I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? I kind of indicated it to you, didn't I? That means generally, I'm not going to change. But you're a verb. And you can change. And habits are not you. You just think they are. They appear to be close. What, what is it about habit that's so wondrous? You know, that we seem to cling to them. Well, they're familiar, aren't they? They're really deeply familiar, so much so that we mistake them for being us. Yeah? My ways of thinking, my ways of doing things. Have you noticed how nobody, absolutely nobody, can do anything the way you do? <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed that? Yeah. That's not the right way to do it. I do it this way. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of joking about this, but there's a lot of seriousness to this, isn't it? It's, it becomes, we become entangled in our own views about ourselves and who we are and the solidity of ourselves and what constitutes ourselves. And in that moment, in becoming a self, we close down options of being, ways and possibilities of being. We close them down. We lose possibilities. We lose opportunities and ways of seeing and ways of encountering and ways simply of being in this world. We lose that by becoming a self, by becoming something in our own minds and sometimes in the minds of others, something fixed something immutable. Yeah. We often long to be our real self. Have you come across that phrase? I'm searching for the real self. Where is it? I always think of Basil Fawlty with the rat. You know, have you ever seen that sketch where he's trying to look for the rat in the pie? <laughs> Looking for our real self. I, used to, I came across a, a card, you might have even seen it, which was around a little while ago, which um, had a picture of a guy with glasses on and a, a jeans and a rucksack on his back and climbing a mountain. And at the top of the mountain was somebody who looked exactly like him with glasses and a pinstripe suit on. And it said, Stanley went to the Himalayas to look for his real self. <laughs> <laughs> what is this notion of the real self? Yeah. We often look for that. We often look for it. It's, it's a, an illusory object. Have you noticed how when you look for it, it kind of recedes? When you try to find this real self? Even the philosopher David Hume once said, you know, I look inside myself and myself and all I can find are bundles of perceptions. You know, back in the 18th century. 
So many people, not just the Buddha, had this thought that what we feel to be that stable object who is us, which is fixed, actually isn't. It's actually far more fluid. It's actually sometimes even a product of language, of the languages we speak. We have a very good one. I mean, that's fantastic in English, isn't it? I. I. Have you ever noticed it? If I had a blackboard here or a you know, kind of whiteboard, I'd draw it on. Draw I in English. It doesn't work in other languages, by the way. It's only in English. You write I on the board. What does it look? Stick-like and lonely. Doesn't it? That's the nature of selves. Yeah. Stick-like, lonely and isolated. So being a self is a lonely business. Being a self actually takes a great deal of effort to be a self in that way. And the Buddha, in one of his texts, in one of these early texts, describes this idea of this fixity of ourselves as being like a post nailed into, a gra- into the ground with a dog tied to it. And all the dog does is run round and round the post. And this is what we do. We run round the post of ourselves yeah, and who we think we are. And it's an act of forgetting. It's an act of forgetting our possibilities. Our possibilities which are present in this moment if we awaken to them. Yeah. Talked about all that seemingly negative stuff and that's all what we are awakening to. We're awakening as well, not just to the fact that things are impermanent, including you. Yeah. This is the Buddha's message, including you. Now that might be scary because that means that you know, death is an inevitability. Mortality is part of the human condition. But it's also a fantastic sense of liberation if one really takes that on board because you're not fixed. You are never at an end. The only end is death. Whilst you're alive, you're an open possibility. But of course, death can occur at any time before you're shoveled into the grave. Yeah? You might know this quotation. It's by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin once said, most people are dead by the age of 23. They're just not buried till 70. <laughs> In other words, what happens? What happens in that? That sense of openness becomes constricted and constricted and constricted until actually, it's not literally physical death, obviously, is it? It's being spoken about. It's the metaphorical death of constricting oneself so much that you die to your possibilities. You, You actually experience a death of your possibilities in life and then life feels monochrome. This is part of the human condition when we do that. Again, coming back to one of our main themes of the week, rather than berate ourselves about this, doesn't this call for, literally call for, immense compassion? Immense understanding, immense friendliness to the fact that we are often doing this to ourselves, and we attempt to do it to others. But there is always at the back of that an inkling of this freedom, I think. And again, I just want to refer to common experience that we might all, or certainly some of us, have had in our lives. When somebody says, have you ever felt this? When somebody says to you, you're that sort of person, doesn't everything sort of go, ugh? And recoil when you're trying to be summed up in that way. Yeah. It's like being totalized in that moment. You're totalized in that moment. Yeah. You're that sort of person. And you want to say, yeah, sometimes. But not always. Because to be that sort of person, whatever that is, whatever that might be, 
is then to be restricted. Again, drawing on stuff that we often find not just in Buddhist thought, but in, in sometimes in Western thought, there's, the, there's a, a thinker who is actually um, from the Baltic states by birth, but lived in France for a long time, called Emmanuel Levinas. And he says, every time that we confront the human individual, particularly the face, and we look into the face of the other, we are confronted by an infinity. That the attempt to capture that person, unless we do violence to them, the totalizing violence to them, unless we do that, that person always recedes from your grasp. What I would suggest is, from the Buddha's point of view, that we're doing that not only to others, but to ourselves. We often totalize ourselves because we totalize others. We try to sum them up. We try to sum ourselves up. And at a certain point in life, perhaps we cease to, as I say, open to the possibilities we have, which are not infinite. They are finite possibilities, but they're possibilities nonetheless that we foreclose in trying to be something for someone or for some form of life. This was actually the Buddha's diagnosis, again, of one of his forms of craving. He called it bhava-tanha. Tanha, grasping, craving. We craved to be something. We crave to be something almost more solid than we are. And as such, we constantly do violence to ourselves. And we enact violence on others in doing it to them as well, in trying to sum them up. And this is not freedom, it is constriction. It is entrapment. The kind of entrapment that I spoke about the other night. But again, I want to remind you, of course, that the Buddha is saying it does not have to be this way. It does not have to be this way. We can come into full remembrance of our possibilities, of our humanness. The possibilities that our humanness gives us. The possibilities of living with generosity. The possibilities of living with friendliness and compassion. The possibilities of living with real understanding about the way things are. And that would entail this blowing out, this cessation. Actually, not even blowing out. Sometimes you'll see nirvana translated as blowing out. It's not, it's not even an activity. Think of the metaphor again. We're fueling the fires. When you diminish and cease to fuel the fires, what happens? What happens to a fire when you stop putting coal on it or wood? It goes out. So if we cease to fuel those fires, and we can cease to fuel those fires by cultivating something else, and that cultivation, again, the the word that we've kind of really tried to get you to associate with what we're calling meditation. And in that cultivation, we are bringing into being something beautiful. We're bringing into being those possibilities of living in this world with others in a completely transformed way, an utterly transformed way. And when we start to live in that transformed way, and when you see glimpses of it, and I'm, you know, I just want, don't want to diminish our ordinary experience. Sometimes we see glimpses of this. Those momentary acts of kindness. Yeah? Those momentary acts of kindness. Those momentary acts of dropping that sense of self that we push to the foreground of our experience. That we push to the foreground so much so that it cuts us off from others. 
I've been teaching with Christina Feldman quite a, you know, quite a number of years now, and recently she started using an example that she came across of a T-shirt with a little slogan on it. And I'd never seen this. And I looked out on the road the other day and I saw a kid in our road with this T-shirt with the slogan on it. And it says, actually, it is all about me. Yeah. And that's actually, at least it's honest, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, actually, it is all about me. And often that's what we feel, isn't it? But in that state, if you really think about it, if you actually associate it with the emotions that go with that, there is a sense of cut-offness from others. What is so interesting about these Brahma Viharas that we've spoken about, Jenny certainly spoke about last night in relation, you know, with the, in talking about metta, is that all of these, in some senses, bring us out into a world of connection with others. They're relational, aren't they? They're absolutely relational. Metta, what meaning does it have? If it's just directed towards oneself, well, mm, that's okay, that's good. I mean, this is certainly an improvement on a lot of what we do in the West, but it needs to get out there into the world. We're doing it, remember, caring for ourselves is caring for others. It's relational. This manifests in the acts of kindness, perhaps, which we in the Western world call compassion. It manifests, which is about others. Self-compassion is important, it's absolutely valuable, but it really has very little meaning if it's isolated from our being <coughs> with others in this world. Yeah. Joyfulness, part of the joyfulness that the Buddha speaks about is the joy of the good fortune of others, even if you're not experiencing it yourself. That's a really difficult one, isn't it? Yeah. What do you mean you've won the lottery? Yeah, there's a kind of grudging, <laughs> grudgingness often a lot about our connectedness with others in relation to their good, you know, their good fortune, even when we're not having it. But we're opening up to that joyfulness, that gentle joyfulness, that we can experience joy in the joy of others, not just in having it for ourselves. And ultimately, of course, the equanimity of being in a world and not being buffeted by quite the same way and living in the world with others again in an unbuffeted way, not being pulled by good fortune and not being shaken by bad fortune. We live in a world which is you know, not susceptible to that kind of movement, not just like a pinball in a pinball machine being thrown around by the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but actually have some balance yeah. some poise as we move, some equipoise, a lovely word which is often used almost synonymously with equanimity, some equipoise as we move through this world. And where do we discover this all? Not in some hypothetical future, but in the present. And coming back to nirvana, where is nirvana to be found? But actually, let's... let's Make it into a verb form. Nirvanaing. Yeah. Are you going to come and nirvana with me tonight? <laughs> you know? It's nirvanaing. It's not nirvana. Yeah, it sounds like a noun, it isn't, it's a verb. Yeah, nirvanaing. And it's the dropping away, the going out of those fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. And it's not just the going out, it's the arrival of something which is much more joyful, much more positive in that moment. It's not simply the absence of the greed, aversion, and confusion, delusion. It's the arising of everything else that, in a sense, is the diametric opposite of those states of mind and what is based on those states of mind. Yeah, and states of heart as well. When the heart has the absence of greed, we discover the presence of something else, which perhaps is generosity. And I'm not talking about here about 
possessions and material stuff. I mean the generosity of spirit, you know, that can really connote being what we would see as a human being that, that can bring something positive and good to people. And we see that, don't we, from time to time. We see that person. We see these people. These people, you know, this is, I think, why the Dalai Lama is so applauded all over the world, no matter what particular religious persuasion is, you know, what the particular religious persuasion is, because, you know, he's an exemplar of this. And there's lovely stories about the Dalai Lama, about him, you know, his ability to see people. Has anybody read The Art of Happiness? Yeah. That lovely story in there about when he's teaching in America. And one day the lift attendant is standing there and as he's coming out to go and off and give his public talk or something, and he, the Dalai Lama goes up to the lift attendant and shakes his hand. Next day there's three of them there. And he goes up and shakes all their hands. By the end of the week, apparently the whole hotel is there. <laughs> you know... Because everybody wanted to be around it. And I don't, you know, I think he's a wonderful exemplar. I don't want to get romantic about this, but this is the reason why, because it's that connectedness, isn't it? It's that humanity. It's not sort of something superhuman. It's just being really human in that ability to contact and be with people in the moment. And how can you do that? You can only do that in some way by emptying the self. Yeah. Now, not to say that you can't be yourself. Of course, being yourself is important. You've got to be a, the pro, be the process that you are. Yeah. Discover the possibilities that you are in your life. But don't get fixated. Don't turn yourself into a thing. Yeah. Jean-Paul Sartre in um, Sartre in his Being and Nothingness almost jokes about it. He says, you know, human beings are trying to turn themselves into, into tables and chairs. Yeah, tables and chairs appear to have more solidity and they don't change that much. <laughs> yeah. So just ask yourself the question, do you want to be a table and chair? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to be something solid or do you want to be the possibilities that you can be? The freedom that you can be. Not the freedom, remember, to, but the freedom from. The freedom from those tyrannies of the things that can drive our behaviours into destructive ways and are not just directed towards ourselves, but we like to spread it around. Yeah? If I've got a bit of misery, I like to spread it around. Yeah. Yeah. Infect those around me. Yeah. And it's letting go of that. And we can do that in this moment. And once again, I would suggest when we start to do that in this moment, we encounter a joyfulness which is not present in being a solid, egotistical self. Yeah? When we're not that solid, egotistical self who we think we are, who can't possibly change because that's the way I am. Yeah. When we start to drop some of that, and the things that sustain that, what sustains it? Well, again, all of the psychology associated with greed, aversion and delusion, grasping and clinging. That's what sustains it. Now, none of this is easy, of course. None of this is easy. But it's cultivated moment by moment, day by day, bit by bit, and it's cumulative. You know, I suggested to you the other night that nirvana, and I mentioned it briefly again the other night, wasn't like the blinding flash on the road to Damascus. That actually, even now, you can experience a little nirvana. Yeah? You can nirvana in this moment. And what it means is, and one way of translating this notion of nirvana is to unbind. And what are you unbinding from? The habit patterns that you think you are. Yeah. Now only you can examine that for yourself and see whether that's true. 
that actually when we begin to tease away a lot of who we think we are, what we discover is habit patterns of like, habit patterns of dislike, habit patterns of who I genuinely think constitutes me at this moment. I used to do a little exercise with students sometimes, you know, getting them to write down, you know, likes and dislikes, who they think they are. And actually a lot of it comes out in just likes and dislikes. I'm the sort of person that X. I'm the sort of person that doesn't X. (laughs) Try it for yourself. It's quite revelatory, actually. Who do you think you are? This is nothing about genealogy, by the way, and uh, family trees. (laughs) But when we seriously look at ourselves, you know, are we, are we wanting to be in that stable sense of the unchanging, the predictable, but also the sustained, egotistical person who we can be? Or can we be more open to our possibilities and ways of being and to discover a moment-by-moment way of being in this world which is responsive to that which is arising, responsive and receptive? to what is needed. This is why, even when we were talking about ethics in the question and answer session, you can't really say there's a Buddhist ethics with a whole list of things that you must do, because it's actually developing that sensitivity and that receptivity to be able to respond. You know, so much so, and in one tradition in Buddhism, that ethics actually gets translated as responsibility. The ability to respond, it's actually translated into Tibetan language in that way. That's what ethics means, the ability to respond to things, rather than follow a list of rules and regulations of our thou shalt and thou shalt nots, which we can also build into, I'm the sort of person that always does X or Y or Z and doesn't do X and Y and Z. So we're moving in this path to something which is much more spacious. If you have felt rather oppressed and constricted by some of the things that I've said about the human condition, good. (laughs) Because it was for a purpose. The purpose is to show us actually that's often the way that we feel, but it goes unrecognized. It goes unrecognized that we are constricted, feeling rather cramped, and that's part of our dissatisfaction, isn't it? And this is talking about a spaciousness, living with a spaciousness, living in that responsiveness, beginning to unbind skillfully from our habit patterns. And I suggested again, I think it was the other night, have you ever had that experience when you've, when just a minor habit pattern has dropped away? Might even be just something you do in speech and that habit of speech has dropped away for whatever reason, might be effort that you've made on your part or just it's kind of gone. And notice the feeling tone that that has. And that feeling tone is often a feeling, a degree of freedom. Freedom from the oppression of the habit. Does it ever strike you that way? That that habits feel rather oppressive. If I have to do something. If I have to keep on doing it. It's a really good test, actually. and this is what's good about retreat often, is we have to drop certain habit patterns. Obviously we can't drop, just drop habit patterns of mind, but certainly a lot of those physical habit patterns, like coming in, switching on the radio, picking up the newspaper, being distracted, in all the possibilities that we have when we're at home, they have to go here, don't they? But you can feel the urge to want them. Yeah? You can feel often the need for those things, for those distractions. And it's like the litmus test. If you feel there's that 
compulsion and it feels uncomfortable because you haven't got those things. Just think of something in your life that you say, I couldn't do without that. Then you know you've got unfreedom. That you're tied to something. And it might be fine if you realise that. But most most of it, of course, is pretty unconscious in our ordinary life. We are unconsciously tied to habit patterns. So in this process of remembering, we're starting to recollect what we're doing. We're beginning to slow down, to use Kundra's phrase, to move into slowness, to remember, to recollect, to listen to ourselves. Listening to others is difficult, isn't it? Listening to others can be very, very difficult because our minds are speeding. Have you noticed sometimes how we try to solve somebody's problem before they've even told us it? <laughs> yeah. We're jumping ahead, we're putting in words, we're you know, talking over, often not listening. And so there's a close listening, and we suggested, or I certainly suggested, when I introduced the metta, that, listen, you know, that using those phrases is not just about re- repeating them, it's not even about some magical efficacy of using a phrase that says, may you be safe and protected, or may I be safe and protected. It's like listening. Listening to the resonances of that. Learning to become responsive in our listening. Yeah. If we don't do this, then we're often cut off from ourselves and cut off from others. And it's a lonely business, as I said, being an I. Yeah? Have you, any of you familiar with Harold Pinter's plays? Yeah? Usually Harold Pinter's plays, the playwright Harold Pinter, usually writes plays which are a series of interrupted monologues. Yeah? They hardly, ever, hardly ever anybody talks to each other. Yeah? It's, almost, it's almost like I've had a terrible day, but yes, look at my shoes. It's that sort of thing. And, and often that supposedly passes for human communication. Uh, I've told this story so many times. I had a, there's a wonderful cartoon out, which is, it was published quite a number of years ago. I think it was in the New Yorker or something. It was one of the American magazines. And it showed a man and a woman sitting over a dinner table. And, and she's sort of leaning back in a chair. And it's obviously been having dinner because there's a bottle of wine in the middle and everything. And he's leaning across the table, and in the bubbles above his head, and there's loads of them, he goes, me. 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 <laughs> and it's happening all the time in this series of cards, in, um, in the bubbles above his head, just me, 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 me. And finally, he obviously finished talking about me, and he leans back in the chair, and she leans across the table, and above... Her head in the bubble goes, me. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> I think it's such a good example of non-communication passing as communication. <laughs> yeah. That's being cut off. That's being a self. I mean, being a me is isolating. It cuts us off, as I say, from others. It cuts us off from really engaging. And we do that in forgetfulness. We do that in forgetfulness. So, sati, to remember. To learn. Interesting. Remember I started off, we don't learn anything from history other than we don't learn anything from history. The fears the emotions that keep on returning where we don't learn because we incorporate them. These are us. That's who we think we are. We think we are our emotions, our thoughts. We search for identities in things. An identity is, is stable, seemingly. But in doing that, in searching for that identity, we turn ourselves into a noun and are not the verb that we can be. 
And so we end up in a cycle of reaction. In Buddhist terms, this is called sangsara, which is derived in these original languages from a basic root, which means to go round in circles. And does that ever feel like life? Going round in circles? I'll leave you to judge in terms of your own lives, that often we perpetuate things. Going round in circles, doing the same stuff because we don't let go of the habits and we don't let go of me and who I think I am in this. And so we're waking up to that process. So everything everything that's gone before, all the talks I've given before, are about waking up to these situations, waking up. And waking up also means to wake up then, for, therefore, to our possibilities, our other ways of being. Yeah? Our other ways that we can be in this world and connected with those that we see around us. And where I'm running out of time, and I just wanted to bring this, that this nirvanaing that I speak about, and it sounds strange, doesn't it, in English, you know, to turn something that appears to be a, it's a foreign language, it's a, you know, Sanskrit in this particular case, and then, then turn it into a verb. Yeah? But it's something that in some ways is a way of being. Yeah? It's a way of being. And being rather than being. Yeah? In other words, hyphenated. Verb. We live in a fluid world. You are fluid. You're flowing. Yeah? Do you want to be a stagnant pool or do you want to be flowing? So nirvanaing is the skill by which we learn. And when we look at these ancient texts, I see, I see a series not of doctrines, you know, even the metasutta. Remember, it starts off, this is what is to be done. Skills training manual. <laughs> yeah. It's not doctrine, it's a skills training manual saying, if you want to be in a certain way, this is what you need to do. To nirvana in certain ways is to be skilled in starting to let go of your habit patterns that you think are so deeply ingrained in being you. And that can occur in this moment, and this moment, and this moment. So you've never lost that possibility. You're never so deeply stuck that that can never occur. It might take time, it might take effort, but it can always occur as long as you have life. Because you're never at an end. The meaning of your life is in the living of it. The meaning of your life lies in the living of it. The meaning of your life is usually you know, is just within that flow of what we do and our possibilities of living wholesomely or unwholesomely in this life. The meaning, with the big word, the capital meaning of our lives, is usually summed up by others after you're dead. (laughs) That was the meaning of their lives. Yeah, it's the stuff of biographies, obituaries. But in other words... The gentle sense of the meaning of your life lives, you know, it resides in the living of the doing of it, moment to moment. I kind of want to fish, finish off on a couple of quotations. One, again, from something I read to you from the other night, which is this book, Rowing Without Oars. And again, it was, it's an incident that happened to this lady, remember who was a... a a Swedish television presenter who developed this motor neurone disease. I was reading reading to you from the other night. And she says this, and it's about an incident that happens with her son who comes to see her. And she says this, Gustav comes and stands beside my desk. Do you write all the time, mummy? It takes such a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. 
Now it's me who's getting much smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, mummy. Every second is a life, I echo. Actually, I think I'll finish there. Because it means you're never at an end. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for your attention once again. Okay. Let us just sit quietly for a, a minute or so. Okay, we'll take a break now. Uh, if we could have the bell rung at about five to nine, uh, as usual, come here for nine o'clock and sit for 15 minutes. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.